0: Nuclear Ukraine, it has implications for all nuclear reactors and the radioactive infrastructure that supports them. This awareness has been gained watching the dangers play out on a day by day, sometimes hour by hour process at Chernobyl and Zaporizhia. And there are parallel dangers for all nuclear reactors the world over and specifically here in the United States. That long obscured connection only comes into focus when a genuine expert, a licensed nuclear reactor operator and industry whistleblower with impeccable credentials, tells us these
1: plants. if they were designed to withstand active war or the worst tsunami or um, the worst hurricane in the case of Florida, uh, the cost would be so high that they would be prohibitive. So, What the designers did was create design criteria that were not adequate.
0: Well, when Arnie Gunderson parses the deep background of how we've gotten ourselves into this nuclear mess, and we realize how far ahead of activists and regular people the nuclear industry has planned, it's thus far immunity from accountability for the dangers that they have surrounded us with. You realize that, yep, no getting around it. You are stuck in that giant, uncomfortable radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat,
1: the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking.
2: It's the bomb.
0: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I, so I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Arnie Gunderson. He is chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education and a licensed nuclear reactor operator. From Arnie, we hear a nuanced interpretation of the dangers faced during the Russian occupation of Chernobyl, along with some shocking parallels between the problems faced in Ukraine with the Fukushima nuclear triple meltdown disaster in Japan and a nuclear reactor construction criterion here in the United States. We'll also weigh in with Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project about the probable radiation impact on the Russian troops who were digging trenches in the most highly radioactive part of the Chernobyl exclusion zone, the Red Forest. We will also have nuclear news from around the world Numbnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than we will ever get from those who have a financial or power stake in the nuclear industry. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 12, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out, as we have for the past six weeks, with Ukraine with items that came through too late to be included in our interview segment. Word coming from the sixth nuclear reactor Zaporizhzhia site in the south of Ukraine states that when the site was shelled, Russian occupiers damaged several facilities on the premises, a preliminary estimate of the damage is 18.3 billion ukrainian hryvnias or the equivalent of 600 million u.s dollars that according to ed lyman of the union of concerned scientists the facilities damaged by the russian military include buildings and equipment shelled during the zaporizhia assault the building of the training center was destroyed beyond repair an Atom Ergomash Power Engineering Company building that was shelled by a bypassing invaders column. An Atom Service Power Repair Company equipment that was on the Zaporizhia premises during the seizure. According to the most recent information we can find, Russia still controls the sixth nuclear reactor site. At Chernobyl site of the 1986 nuclear explosion and fire, which is ranked as the worst nuclear disaster in history, the new containment building and the exclusion zone are now under full control of the Ukrainians. Regarding the Russians' digging and extensive trenching, just a few hundred yards outside the new containment building in the Red Forest, an elaborate maze of sunken walkways and bunkers had been constructed despite warnings. Valery Simonov, the chief safety engineer for the Chernobyl nuclear site, said, We told them not to do it, that it was dangerous, but they ignored us. The camps showed signs of Russian forces digging in soil that could contain radioactivity 1,000 times above ambient background levels. One Russian soldier from a chemical, biological, and nuclear protection unit picked up a source of radioactive cobalt-60, at one waste storage site with his bare hands, exposing himself to so much radiation in a few seconds that it went off the scales of a Geiger counter. No word as to what has happened to that man. And as they retreated from Chernobyl, Russian troops blew up a bridge in the exclusion zone and planted a dense maze of anti anti-personal mines, tripwires, and booby traps around the defunct station. Two Ukrainian soldiers have stepped on mines in the past week, according to the Ukrainian government agency that manages the site. And based upon one tweet, which I've been unable to confirm through other sources, but which sounds logical and is truly numbnuts worthy, the reason given for the Russian willingness to send troops into the most highly contaminated area to dig trenches is that they were using maps from 1985 the year before the Chernobyl accident, so they, of course, revealed no dangers. Over to Japan, where there is currently a debate over whether the radioactively contaminated soil from the nuclear accident in Fukushima should be considered waste or a valuable resource. In 2005, the Japanese government established a clearance system that allows radioactive waste to be disposed of as normal waste and set as the measurement standard 100 becquerels of radiation per kilogram. But after the nuclear accident at Fukushima, the government relaxed its standards for disposal to the equivalent of 8,000 becquerels per kilogram, or 80 times what could be considered safe. The government says that the soil to be reclaimed is a, quote, precious resource. But is it? We're going to link to this article because there are many highly nuanced points that are made about law and the legality of letters of commitment and where this safety standard now stands. A major fisheries group in Japan told Prime Minister Fumio Kishida that it remains firmly opposed to the planned discharge of treated water from the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. This is due to their concerns over the negative impact on the industry. It was the first meeting between the head of the National Fisheries Cooperatives and Japan's Prime Minister since April of last year, when the decision was made to release radioactive tritium-contaminated water into the ocean as of the spring of 2023. Then Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga announced the policy without gaining consent from the fisheries group. The government's concern seems to be the reputational protection for the fishermen and their catch, not the possible health impact from the fish. In addition to Japan's local fishing communities, neighboring China and South Korea have also expressed their worries over the water discharge plan. And as if that's not enough, Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, Hot seat, awake. The Japanese government and Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, last year announced the plan to dump into the Pacific Ocean more than 1 million tons of water that have accumulated at the Fukushima site and are contaminated with radioactive tritium. This plan has been opposed by local residents and fishery industry officials who are worried about reputational damage to marine products caused by the water release. So, to quote unquote dispel the public's anxiety and reassure people, as of September, TEPCO will begin growing 600 flatfish and 800 abalone in either ordinary seawater, with no word about where this seawater is actually from, and diluted water containing tritium at what they claim will be the same level of the water that will be discharged. The creature's bodies will then be analyzed for a concentration of tritium and other substances, and their growth rates will be noted. But there is no information about the time frame for this experiment. How long will the fish be growing there? Does tritium perhaps bioaccumulate over time? meaning a short growing span, will show much less concentration of the element than would show up with a longer growing season. What food will they be fed? From where will it be sourced? And will it be equivalent of what they would have in the open situation of the ocean? Who's going to set the standard for what is quote-unquote acceptable tritium levels and what is not? And while we're at it, let's point out that radioactive elements cannot be diluted with seawater. They can only be dispersed. They are still just as dangerous with a single atom of internal contamination being dangerous to a person's long-term health and well-being and capable of creating cancer. But hey, what a PR move, right? Let's just damp down public anxiety and reassure people. Or as one TEPCO official said, we hope to counter negative publicity by showing that fish can grow healthily, meaning in the treated water. What he neglected to say was that they're looking forward to it perhaps mutating to grow faster and bigger and cook itself with residual heat from the nuclear disaster. And that's why Tokyo Electric Power Company, Japanese government, and the PR brainiacs who are behind this one, you are this week's Nuclear hot seed, none that sound week. Also opposing the Fukushima nuclear water discharge, Pacific elders of South Pacific Islands, they say that it is unacceptable and contravenes international and regional agreements, including the London Convention on the Prevention of Marine Pollution by Dumping of Waste and Other Matter, and the South Pacific Nuclear-Free Zone Treaty of Rarotonga. Under the Treaty of Rarotonga, state parties are obligated to prevent the stationing of any nuclear explosive device, prevent the testing of any nuclear explosive device, not to dump radioactive wastes and other radioactive matter at sea anywhere within the South Pacific nuclear-free zone, and to prevent the dumping of radioactive wastes and other radioactive material by anyone in the territorial sea of the state's parties. Japan made its decision to dump more than 1 million tons of tritium-contaminated radioactive water from Fukushima into the ocean without consulting the affected coastal countries, especially in the northern Pacific island states, And no environmental impact assessment has been conducted. Hungary received its first shipment of nuclear fuel for its POX nuclear plant from Russia on Wednesday, April 7, after the war in Ukraine made shipping by rail impossible. Hungary has rejected any sanctions on Russian oil and gas, adding that imposing any sanctions on activities related to nuclear energy was also a red line for the country. The recently re-elected Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, is reportedly cited as sharing warm ties with Russian President Vladimir Putin. In Germany, E.ON, the country's biggest energy company, has ruled out extending the life of its nuclear power plant near Munich. E.ON CEO Leo Birnbaum said, There is no future for nuclear in Germany. Period. And from the U.K., Word that that country could run out of room to store radioactive waste if the government presses ahead with plans to build eight new nuclear power stations across the country. Dr. Sarah Darby of the University of Oxford said, any nuclear project, including the untested and non-small, small modular nuclear reactors, is inevitably hugely expensive, runs over time and over budget, and leaves a waste legacy that we still don't know how to deal with. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment. But first, if you haven't visited Nuclear Hot Seat's new website yet, go take a look. There's a more robust and flexible player for each episode. The pages load faster, content is more searchable, and now we have transcripts. Now, it's still a work in progress. We're still loading past episodes and pages and transcripts. And then, of course, there's proofreading and working out the inevitable bugs. But this upgrade has already increased the reach of the program around the world, with recent downloads even in China and Russia. And what you see is only part of what we get, because we've installed state-of-the-art behind-the-scenes functionality to help the show, its topics, and interviewees be found on Google. So we've got search engine optimization on steroids. The goal is to provide you, meaning anyone around the world who has the Internet, with access not only to today's breaking nuclear stories, but the history of how we got here, provided on a week-by-week basis for almost 11 full years. There is truly nothing like Nuclear Hot Seat anywhere else. Now, as you might imagine, the website upgrade has been very expensive. Expenses have far outstripped original projections. So, yes, you know what's coming. Your help is needed to keep this new, improved website up and running. That means the time to donate to Nuclear Hot Seat would be right now. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button. You can do this as a one-time donation or, hey, set up a recurring donation of as little as $5 a month, the same as you might spend on a cup of coffee here in the U.S. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee a month, that's metaphoric, and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's first featured interview. The nuclear dangers that have thus far been survived in Ukraine have implications for nuclear power reactors around the world. And it takes a genuine expert like Arne Gunderson to interpret what's been going on there for what it shows not only about their nukes, but our nukes in our own backyards. Arnie is a licensed nuclear reactor operator and former nuclear energy senior vice president turned whistleblower. Now, and for many years, he's been chief engineer for Fairwinds Energy Education, a nonprofit founded with his wife, Maggie Gunderson, that provides information and assistance to communities around the world that are struggling with nuclear safety and radiation danger issues. Here, I snagged Arnie to interpret the dangers of the loss of power to the Chernobyl facility, as well as what this situation has to say about American nuclear reactors and some parallels with the Fukushima triple meltdown disaster. I spoke with Arnie Gunderson on Monday, April 11, 2022. Arnie Gunderson, it's always a pleasure to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, Libby. Thanks for inviting me back. We originally spoke about the problems at the Ukrainian nuclear power stations and Chernobyl for nuclear hot seat number 558 on March 1st. That's five weeks ago. At that time, we focused on the vulnerability of the cooling systems at nuclear reactors and radioactive sites in a war zone with an eye to the Zaporizhia 6 reactor complex in the south of Ukraine and very specifically Chernobyl. Briefly review for us what the problems are that are faced at both sites.
1: Five weeks ago, when the Russian invasion began, the fears then are are not much different than the fears now. A nuclear plant needs to take power from the grid to run its cooling systems. And the fear, of course, would be that the Russian invasion would knock the grid out so there would be no power coming in, which forces the power plants to run on their diesel generators. And even though Chernobyl's been shut down for 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 two decades now, three decades for the one that had the disaster. But the others were shut down for two decades. Even though they've been shut down, they still need ventilation systems to filter out the radiation. They still need to keep the computers running, the lights running, the management systems intact to keep track of this radiation. So losing power at either of the 11, no, the 15 power plants other than Chernobyl plus Chernobyl is a big deal.
0: We learned that Chernobyl lost outside power, meaning the power lines, on March 9, when reportedly Russian troops disconnected the facility. There were estimates that they had backup fuel to run the cooling system for only two days. What was the danger that was faced, and how bad was it? How close do we get to something much worse than what actually happened?
1: That's a pretty frightening number, two days for a diesel normal diesels have enough diesel fuel to run about a week and they have to be replaced they get fresh fuel sometimes two weeks but no longer than that so i was surprised when chernobyl's diesels only had a couple of days supply as i mentioned chernobyl was an issue because of the air filtration systems and fans that had to be running to maintain to prevent radioactivity from leaving the uh, sarcophagus as well as the, the issue of the other reactors still have water in the spent fuel pools. So they had to be cooled. So losing diesels is, is a big deal. We just learned that the plant staff was just as concerned as you and I and many Western scientists were. But in fact, they had to take, uh, I would call, drastic measures. They actually went out and stole fuel, diesel fuel, from the Russian army's equipment that was parked nearby in order to top up their tanks, top up their barrels. They stole from tanks and they topped up their barrels. The net effect is they uh, were able to maintain power, but had to rely on extraordinary means. I mean, who would have to believe you'd send your people out to steal fuel from the Russian invaders? It was pretty remarkable uh, reporting. But the staff made it through taking remarkable uh, precautions.
0: This brings to mind the remarkable work that was done by Masao Yoshida in Japan at Fukushima. He was the plant manager of Fukushima. And when the disaster started there, he lost backup cooling the systems were not working as they would. And he actually hooked it up to car batteries in the parking lot in order to have the power and, in essence, may have saved the world from a much worse, much more disastrous disaster than Fukushima turned out to be. You know, that's another
1: Perfect example of what these power plants are designed for is not what nature or, or mankind actually throws at them. Uh, you're right. They did go out and uh, look for car batteries to pop up the batteries that they had at the power plant. It wasn't enough, but it got them a, a little further down the road. You know, these plants are designed for something called the MCA, the Maximum Credible Accident. And that's the box that the designers say will never be exceeded. Maggie and I and the Fairbanks crew call MCA maximum cash available. These plans, if they were designed to withstand active war or the worst tsunami or um, the worst hurricane in the case of Florida, uh, the cost would be so high that they would be prohibitive. So what the designers did was create design criteria that were not adequate you know the batteries at fukushima the stealing uh, diesel fuel at chernobyl and we've got similar uh, issues here in the united states as well my biggest fear is turkey point which is not designed for a hurricane like we're experiencing now with with global climate change turkey point is just south of miami and it's interesting because there's two nukes there now and there's two other that are proposed And the two that are proposed are designed to be about 10 feet higher than the two that are there because of climate change. But yet, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission isn't doing anything. Again, their MCA, their maximum credible accident, their maximum cash available was agreed to 50 years ago before we understood how a climate crisis could affect them. So, whether it's a tsunami in Japan, a hurricane in Florida, Or an act of war in Ukraine, these plants just don't have the design bases is what I would call it. That's kind of a geeky term, but they are not robust enough to withstand what mother
0: nature or uh, human nature can throw at them. One of the things I like to track on the show is how so-called official experts, the people the mainstream media reach out to immediately for comment whenever anything nuclear comes up, have been commenting on Ukraine, one of them being the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, which is the UN's so-called nuclear watchdog. Almost immediately when Chernobyl was taken and when we found out that they had very little fuel, they made the statement that, quote, it sees no critical impact on safety, noting that the plant has what they called a sufficient volume of cooling water to control temperatures without electricity. And an analysis from the U.S. Department of Energy concurred that, quote, the loss of power does not pose a near-term risk of radiological release. That was according to the head of the agency, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. How accurate would you say these statements are?
1: Well, we have to go back to the organizations that made the statements. Article 2 of the IAEA charter is to promote nuclear power. So you can be sure that the International Atomic Energy Agency is not going to say, oh my God, run for the hills. So whenever I see an IAEA report, whether it's out of Fukushima or here in the Ukraine, I note that there's somebody censoring the output because you can't promote nuclear power if you're telling people to duck and cover. And the same with the Department of Energy, you know, The Department of Energy was spun off from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. This is back when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was supposed to regulate. They wanted somebody to promote as well. So when you hear the DOE promoting nuclear power by claiming there's not anything to fear, I'm always hesitant. And I'm sure the nuclear industry said the same thing. I mean, they went after me in in Vermont. They went after me when I was on CNN. It's a reflex. There's your comment about a so-called expert. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. They, I would call them nuclear zealots. If they're going to call me an anti-nuclear activist, well, the opposite of that is not a industry expert. In fact, it's a nuclear zealot. And that's really what the airwaves have been bombarded
0: with over the last, well, since the war started over there. It seems to me that the purpose of these organizations is to manage panic. In other words, damp down the seriousness of it. Don't give credibility and play the game of patting you on the head with there, there, missy. Don't worry your pretty little head about it.
1: You know, the key in any of these accident scenarios or disasters that are occurring is to frame the issue first. The first person to uh, say, oh, it's not a problem is going to be other reports are going to be compared to that. And this started at Three Mile Island. And it's not just nuclear. The uh, Deepwater Horizon out in the Gulf years ago had the same scenario where they said, oh, there's not much oil being released. The first person out um, gets the controlling narrative. And that's unfortunate, but it's true. And I mean, your show is one of the uh, counter narratives that should give the
0: nuclear industry and nuclear regulators gray air. We're working as hard as we can to get the story out and to build a network of people who can jump forward on social media and create our own echo chamber when anything happens. That's in progress right now. Going back to Russia, we now know that the Russians have left Chernobyl after a lot of digging of trenches. No idea what the trenches are for, unless you've got information, I don't. So they have left the area. Do you think there is going to be any further interest by Russia in Chernobyl? Do you see that there is any way that they might be able to utilize or compromise the site to their own benefit? Or do you think it's pretty much off the table and we're in recovery mode based on what the Ukrainians and the international community can do there?
1: Well, I don't know what the Russians found interesting with Chernobyl in the first place. It wasn't generating power, so they couldn't use that lever. They could use it to strike fear in the world population, which they pretty successfully did. There is uh, satellite data, and I saw an excellent piece yesterday on CNN that showed some satellite data of defensive positions placed in what's called the Red Forest. Now, the Red Forest is not red for Russia. It's red because the trees had... So much radiation, they all died and withered away and turned red. So when you hear the term red forest, it's a highly contaminated area. Now, the Russians brought in lots of troops, thousands of troops into the red forest, and they set up fortifications there, which meant they were digging. I saw what frightened me the most was a piece from CNN that showed a ration pack, a Russian ration pack that was lying on the ground, and one of the people on the show walked over to it with a Geiger counter, and the contamination in the ration pack was 50 times higher than background. So, I mean, you got a bunch of young guys sitting out in the woods for three or four weeks, eating rations in the dirt around Chernobyl. I'm certain that they carried that contamination back in their vehicles, air filters, treads, whatever, But more importantly, in their lungs and in their livers and in their intestines, they've imbibed this stuff and they've inhaled this stuff. So they're walking time bombs. I mean, it's going to be 10 years before they explode or maybe even 20 years, but they're going to get cancers as a result of the radiation they picked up while in the Red Forest area. There's a report by a couple of British tabloids, and and it hasn't been confirmed by what I would call reputable media, that there was some soldiers admitted to hospitals in Belarus with severe radiation sickness. It's called ARS. I haven't heard any more about that. That's a horse of a different color. And we've got to wait to get more data on that. And frankly, I don't think it's coming. You know, The, the Belarusians and the Russians are very unlikely to tell us much about those events. Maybe 10 or 20 years ago, from now rather, they'll own up to it. Or maybe a a great journalist or a person who has excellent contacts in the Ukraine and Belarus and Russia is Dr. Kate Brown from MIT, who wrote a definitive book on Chernobyl. So maybe she'll find out, but we're not going to find out in the next month or two what went on with those soldiers.
0: There were some photos of what were purported to be soldiers who were being carried off on stretchers from various vans or buses. That's the only confirmation we've had. You
1: know, I've seen those photographs. And the question is, were they radiation-induced illnesses or were they chemical exposure? Uh, Chemical exposures are uh, pretty darn quick. And the uh, Amount of contamination, radiological contamination, to level of soldier, I, I would think is higher. But, you know, the jury's out. These guys could be in the hospital from radiation illness. And we we won't know
0: unless uh, somebody leaks a report. What, if anything, more is known about the situation at the six Zaporizhia reactors in the south of Ukraine?
1: Well, they're still controlled by the Russians and it appears that the Russians are moving equipment in near the plant because they know that the um, Ukrainians won't attack. So they're sort of, you know, hiding under their mother's skirt, if you will. It's not a very safe practice, but they're hiding there. Now, two of the units are still running where others are shut down, and the power is going on and getting off again, uh, the grid power, and they're relying on their diesels periodically. Now, the international community has recognized that the diesels there are second rate. The Russian diesels, and they've actually allocated a gift of $60 million to the Ukraine to give that power plant new diesels. Unfortunately, COVID delayed the deliveries. and Now they're scheduled for 2023. So they're running on unreliable Russian diesels when we know there's a better alternative. Just keep your fingers crossed. There's other Russian diesels at other plants throughout the Ukraine,
0: but they're a little further to the West. But those sick remain a concern. I've always said that luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to anything nuclear. So I take your warning and uh, keep my fingers crossed. Is there anything else you'd like to add at this time?
1: You know, we talked about this maximum credible accident or maximum cash available. And I'd like to note that the uh, American power plants don't have to be protected against active war. It's actually a regulation. The uh, nuclear industry lobbied the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Title 10 to the Code of Federal Regulations is the nuclear one. Part 50 is the nuclear reactor. So 10 CFR 50, paragraph 13 says you don't have to design for mortar rounds inadvertently falling on your plant or rockets hitting it or howitzers hitting it or um, troops invading. It's in the law that American power plants don't need to be uh, protected against acts of war. That's another example of how if they had to be, then they couldn't afford it. You know, The same thing with these spent fuel um, sitting out in parking lots at San Onofre or, or um, in Connecticut or wherever. Those don't have to be terrorist proof because the industry couldn't afford it. And they changed the law to reflect the fact that any act of war does not have to be defended against by the owner of the power plant. Just one more example of how, when you don't have the money to make nuclear power safe, they changed the regulations to make nuclear power cheap.
0: Arnie, you're the gold standard. Thank you so much for making the time. I know you're very busy at this point. I appreciate you coming on board on short notice to give us your update here on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thanks, Libby. Thanks for having Maggie and I in Fairwinds and keeping
0: us on your radar. We appreciate it. Always. That was Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer for Fairwinds Energy Education. Their website is at fairwinds.org and that's f-a-i-r-e winds.org. We'll also have a link up on the website. This is where you can find a rich trove of documents and data speaking to radiation and nuclear issues around the world. Now, to learn a bit more about radiation exposure dangers faced by Russian troops who were digging trenches in the most radioactive area of the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone, I checked in with Joseph Mangano. Joe is an epidemiologist and founder of Radiation and Public Health. We spoke briefly on Monday, April 11. 2022, Joseph Mangano. Thanks for joining us on such short notice here on Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: I'm glad to be here, Liggy.
0: We now know that Russian soldiers have been exposed to radioactive materials from Chernobyl in any one of a number of ways. What have been some of those pathways of exposure?
2: The biggest one has just come to light recently, in March and April, and that's after the Russian military took over the Chernobyl plant. Apparently. A number of the soldiers went outside the plant into the, what they call the exclusion zone, aptly named, because of the very high levels of radioactivity throughout the environment, and apparently did things like dig trenches and tunnels, and which basically just radioactivity from where it was laying in the ground and the leaves and the trees and the grass, and just shook it up and put it in the air so they breathed it and now we know that the Russian troops have evacuated the Chernobyl area. Apparently, a number of people are are suffering with health problems from breathing this toxic stuff in.
0: How bad or how intense would the exposure have to be to create a physiological response, an illness in these soldiers?
2: To create a rapid illness, to show symptoms very quickly, it would have to be a very high dose. We normally think of people were exposed to the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or even the rescue workers at places like Chernobyl to take in that huge amount of radiation. That would show right away various symptoms. A lot of people who are exposed to radiation don't show any health problems until years, even decades afterwards. So if Russian soldiers are in fact sick, that means their exposures were very, very high.
0: There are some unconfirmed reports That some of the Russian soldiers have already been sickened and taken to the Belarusian Radiation Medicine Center in Gomel, which is 58 miles or 170 kilometers from Chernobyl. Again, these are unconfirmed reports. There's some controversy about it. But going forward with this, based on the ways that these soldiers could have been exposed or were exposed, how likely is it that severe symptoms, what has been labeled by some sources in mainstream media as acute radiation sickness, have already shown up?
2: Any Russian soldier that has been hospitalized or has been examined by medical personnel After such a short period of time means acute radiation sickness, which is a horrible group of symptoms, including weakness, nausea, fever, delirium, sometimes death within a short period of time. But of course, even if other soldiers didn't get acute radiation sickness, didn't mean they weren't exposed to toxic radioactivity and are at risk for diseases like cancer. In their future, which is a real tragedy. Apparently the Russian army had scientists with them advising them not to go into this evacuation zone. And um, apparently the army leaders ignored them. That brings up a real tragedy. Bad enough when scientists are running a plant and there's a meltdown. But when scientists are not in charge and they're uninformed, the risks go way, way up.
0: These soldiers got hit with radiation some of them were digging trenches it was dust it was dirt they were eating meals on site they were smoking cigarettes they didn't have facilities for washing up they didn't have any kind of protective clothing on them no masks no respirators so they've all been hit the ones who were exposed to this as they go home what are the contamination pathways that they might be taking home with them
2: they've begun the contaminate and that was breathing in addition to eating and drinking.
0: And you know,
2: like you say, if they had meals or if they drank water or other liquids, these tiny particles get into the air and they either go into the body directly through breathing or settle into things that you eat and are consumed that way. And once in the body, this mixture of, of radioactive chemicals, there's over a hundred of them, affects the body in different ways. Example, strontium goes right for the bone and attaches to the bone, and iodine goes right to the thyroid, starts attacking cells there. Uh, Cesium spread throughout the soft tissues in the body, plutonium into the lung. It's just a potpourri of different toxins that really affect the entire body and thus affects risk for all cancers and really all diseases. In a way, there's really no new exposures needed. The damage has been done already, even though they've left.
0: When they go home, what is the likelihood that they are carrying some of these radioactive particles with them?
2: In in addition to the internal exposures right into the body, the radioactivity does get on clothes and hair and so on. It's more of an indirect, but if somehow you breathe into your, your clothing or your hands into your mouth, that could be another pathway. These are particles that last a long, long, long time.
0: And if they go home and their wife or their loved ones give them a hug and they're still wearing this clothing, it's possible that they could somehow be contaminated as well. That is correct. Now, here's a really interesting one. Some of the Russian soldiers have reportedly intentionally taken radioactive souvenirs with them from Chernobyl to wherever they are going. What? do they have to look forward to as a result if, say, they found a radioactive something or another and put it in their pocket?
2: The best case scenario would be if they left the souvenirs behind or dropped them and lost them. There can be no good that comes from taking radioactive souvenirs. I'm not sure what souvenirs we're talking about, but anything with this radioactive contamination is potentially harmful if ingested in air and food
0: and water. And it could be Dropped along the way or intentionally brought back and say, look, honey, look what I got at Chernobyl.
2: There's no such thing as a good radioactive souvenir. That's putting it mildly.
0: So given all the ways these soldiers have been exposed and the way the lack of decontamination has left their vehicles, their clothing, weapons, even their bodies as possible carriers of external radiation to say nothing of what they've already swallowed, what does the future look like for them? How long can they expect to go before some consequences start showing up in their health?
2: The Russian soldiers who apparently have been exposed at Chernobyl, the damage has been done already. And we would expect to see adverse health effects starting immediately. Some apparently have have suffered with acute radiation poisoning already. But really for the rest of their lives, they are going to be at higher risk for Things like cancer, birth defects in their children, should they have children, other immune diseases, really for the rest of their life. For example, the survivors of the two atomic bombs on Japan are still being tracked 75 years after the bombs hit. And their excessively high numbers of cancers and other diseases are still being tracked. It is a slow-release time bomb.
0: And how likely do you think it is that we'll actually ever learn exactly what the impact has been?
2: In a perfect world, the Russians would track these soldiers. They would get a health team together and continue to track the the health of the soldiers along with measuring how much radiation is present in their body. However, in this area, very often political factors sometimes trump health, and medical factors, and that may not be done.
0: Considering how hard it's been to learn what happened to American soldiers who were exposed, be it at Trinity or any of the tests in Nevada or any of the tests down in the Marshall Islands, I believe it's unlikely that we will ever know the truth of what happened to these soldiers as a result of having been at Chernobyl.
2: I would agree it's unlikely. As they say in, in war, the truth is the first casualty, and certainly when it comes to health issues like this often isn't known.
0: Joe Mangano, thanks so much for joining us on short notice here this morning on Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health. You can follow his work at radiation.org. And now there's this. One of the terms that mainstream media has been using to communicate what happened radiologically to the Russian invader troops at Chernobyl is acute radiation syndrome or acute radiation exposure or poisoning. It's a term, looking at that word acute, that's the key there, that's a term usually used to convey a catastrophic exposure to radiation. Is that what happened to these Russian soldiers who dug trenches and lived in the Red Forest area of Chernobyl? Did they and have they developed acute radiation syndrome? And do they now suffer from what is known as radiation sickness or radiation poisoning? In the absence of any direct information out of Russia or Ukraine on this, to find out how badly these Russian soldiers might have been exposed to radiation and what their health prospects might be, I went back to several books on the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear accident. I wanted to learn in more formal and specific language what had happened to workers in the plant who were hit with intense levels of radiation that earned them that acute label. The best description of the health impact of acute radiation exposure that I found is in the book Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. In it, I found the most explicit and some of the most terrifying descriptions – of what acute radiation exposure does to the human body and did to theirs. The book goes into the Chernobyl accident in great detail on both technical and medical impacts and is very well written. But I have reservations about recommending it wholeheartedly because in the final chapter, the author goes from describing the horrors of Chernobyl in all detail to a full-on pro-nuclear pitch. It was so different in tone and attitude, that it sounded to me like it was written or rewritten by someone else other than the author who was hired by the nuclear industry, something the author denied when I interviewed him and asked him directly. But in describing the accident and especially the health impact, Higginbotham did an excellent job. Here, I quote excerpts from Midnight in Chernobyl, Chapter 13, Inside Hospital Number 6. This is about what happened to the workers at Chernobyl In the immediate aftermath of that accident, the first patients from the plant had landed in Moscow soon after dawn on Sunday, April 27. By that evening, a total of 207 men and women, mostly plant operators and firemen, but also security guards who had remained at their post beside the burning unit, construction workers who had waited at a bus stop beneath the plume of radioactive fallout, and anglers from beside the inlet channel, these 207 people had been admitted to the wards of the hospital. 115 of them were initially diagnosed with acute radiation syndrome. Ten had received such massive doses of radiation that the doctors immediately regarded their survival as impossible. As befits a disease created unwittingly by mankind, acute radiation syndrome is a cruel, complex, and poorly understood affliction that tests modern medicine to its limits. The radiation exposure responsible for causing ARS, as it is called, may be over in a few seconds and unaccompanied by any initial reaction. But its destructive effects begin immediately, as the high-energy rays and particles of alpha, beta, and gamma radiation snap strands of DNA, and the exposed cells start to die. Nausea and vomiting set in, with a speed and intensity contingent on the dose, and the skin may redden. But the nausea eventually passes. The discoloration of all but the most severe burn fades within 18 hours, and the patient enters into a comfortable latency period. Depending on the severity of their exposure, this deceptive period of apparent well-being can last for days or even weeks, and only afterwards will the further symptoms of ARS develop. The lower the dose, the longer the latency, and the greater the likelihood of recovery given the right treatment. The doses of radiation that hit each of the individuals depended on where they stood. A few meters here or there would make the difference between life and death. The operators struggling to contain the damage inside Unit 4 had been mantled with dust and radioactive steam from the explosion, and from broken pipes. They had been drenched in water, heavy with beta-emitting particles, and had searched through ruins littered with debris from the reactor core. Some had breathed in radioactive xenon, krypton, and argon, short-lived but intensely radioactive gases that would sear the soft tissue in their mouths and airways. Others would suffer widespread skin burns from gamma rays or from the beta particles that had settled on their skin or soaked into their clothes. Some had been exposed for minutes, others for much longer. Yet, by the time they reached Moscow, a full day after the accident began, only the most gravely affected of the 207 patients exhibited any outward signs of sickness. By the time the outward symptoms of ARS appeared, including swelling, skin burns, and necrosis, hemorrhaging, decimation of bone marrow, corrosion of the airways and digestive system, it would be too late for the doctors to intervene. And without detailed knowledge of the circumstances of a victim's exposure, an accurate picture of their dose and the appropriate treatment was hard to ascertain. Even in the smallest and closely defined nuclear accidents, triage was almost entirely a matter of estimation and guesswork. In the chaos that followed the explosion of reactor number 4 at Chernobyl, Few of the accident victims had been aware of how or where they had been exposed to radiation. The station's own monitoring staff had been overwhelmed. Firefighters had been issued no radiometric equipment at all, and the operators had been wearing only crude personal badge dosimeters, designed for daily use inside the plant, and measuring only up to 2 rem. Those that had been recovered from overalls of hospitalized staff had been carefully bagged and flown to Moscow, only to be inadvertently destroyed during decontamination. Unlike thermal burns caused by heat alone, which heal slowly over time, radiation burns grow gradually worse. And that is followed by some medical details that I feel are too gruesome to include on this podcast. Radiation readings around one of the workers' rooms eventually became so high that the head of the department had to move her office next door to elsewhere in the hospital, The parquet flooring in the hall outside was so contaminated that it was taken up and replaced. And while, within the first 12 days after the accident, the doctors conducted 14 bone marrow operations to try and save the victims, the doctors knew that much of their effort was probably futile, and as many as three-quarters of their transplant patients would probably die. That was a series of excerpts on the impact of radiation on workers at Chernobyl after the 1986 nuclear accident. And it was from the book Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. Admittedly, the circumstances are different with the current troops who have just evacuated from the Chernobyl site and the exclusion zone. But there may be parallels that we can follow here. It does not yet appear that these soldiers are suffering from what could accurately be labeled acute radiation syndrome, but they've definitely been exposed to high levels of radiation and may be experiencing the effects already. As for the ultimate impact on their lives and health, as today's guests have expressed, we will just have to wait and see and hope that informed, credible sources step up to fill us in on what is happening to them and their health along with the deeply-held hope that Russia leaves Chernobyl and all other nuclear sites alone.
2: Activists, shout-outs, shout-outs, shout, out, shout, out, shout out.
0: First, my gratitude to the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network. In conjunction with their annual Becquerel Awareness Day, which is to bring our awareness to radiation dangers, they have cited and supported nuclear hot seat. The approbation of one's peers is always appreciated, and this one has real meaning to me. So, again, my gratitude to our friends at FFAN, and you can always visit them to find more on their Facebook page, Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network. And in keeping with our social media, let's get some tweets and some Facebook messages out there program. Here's a tweet of the week to send out. The dangers faced in Ukraine at Chernobyl and Zaporizhia could happen to any nuclear reactor anywhere. That means in your country, state, or neighborhood. No nuke is safe. All must be shut down and it's radioactive waste managed forever. We'll also have that written on the email we send out with notification of each week's show. So if you want the easy way of just cut and paste into a tweet or an email or anywhere else, make sure you go to the website and sign up for that one email a week. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 12, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, Unrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, Ed Lyman and the Union of Concerned Scientists, en.lb.ua, CNN, New York Times, Gordon Edwards and the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, japantimes.co.jp, mainichi.jp, asahi.com, pacific elders voice reuters.com ft.com inews.co.uk and as always the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating nuclear regulatory commission now if you would like to make certain you don't miss a single episode of nuclear hot seat you can get it delivered via email every week and it's easy to do go to nuclearhotseat.com look for the yellow box Put in your first name and an email address, and bam! Every week, you will get one email, which has the link to that week's show. It shows up as soon as the show is posted. There will also be a short description of the show's content. Of course, you can always sign up on the podcast platform of your choice, because quite frankly, we are now everywhere. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to our brand new website, nuclearhotseat.com, and look for that now modest sized red button. Anything you can do will help, and we greatly appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. That means you can quote me or cite me or any of my guests, but you've got to give credit to Nuclear Hot Seat and my guests' organizations if they are mentioned. This is Libby Halavi of Heart History Communications, producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, If the world understood how dangerous and long-lasting the health impact of ionizing radiation from nuclear sources is, we'd shut down all nukes and put our resources into solving the problems of the radioactive nuclear waste it produces. There you go. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.